Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in counselor education and supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Today's question is, can I analyze the case of James Kim? James Kim was born on August 9, 1971. In 1989, he graduated from high school in Kentucky. In 1993, he graduated from college in Ohio. Six years later, in 1999, he married a woman named Katie. They would have two daughters. James and his wife lived in San Francisco, California. They owned two retail stores there. Katie managed those stores. James had a number of different jobs during his career. He was a legal assistant at law firms in New York and France, a media relations assistant for a baseball league. He read scripts for Miramax films, but he was best known as a television personality. He worked for the cable network Tech TV and would eventually become a senior editor at CNET, which is a media website that publishes reviews on consumer electronics. James co-hosted a weekly podcast and wrote product reviews. Now moving to the timeline of the incident. In 2006, the Kim family spent Thanksgiving in Seattle, Washington. At this time, James was 35, Katie was 30, one of their daughters was four years old, and the other daughter was seven months old. On November 24, the family departed Seattle and made their way to Portland, Oregon to visit a college friend of Katie's. On November 25, the family departed from Portland to head back home. James was driving the family vehicle, a Saab 92X station wagon. The vehicle had all-wheel drive. The family stopped to eat at Denny's in Roseburg, Oregon. Amazingly, this would not be the worst experience they had this evening. The trip was going to take a while, so the family decided to stay at a hotel instead of driving straight through. Katie called a hotel in Gold Beach, Oregon, but the owner told her that the place was kind of hard to find at night. It was probably better to stay someplace right off the interstate. Katie explained this to James but he told Katie to call the hotel back and make a reservation. As they were trying to make their way to the hotel, James missed the exit off of Interstate 5 for Oregon Route 42. The couple didn't realize their mistake until about 20 or 30 minutes later. Rather than simply turn around and go back to their exit, James and Katie looked at a paper map they had in the vehicle and found Bear Camp Road. They believed this was a good alternative route. 
James exited on this road and started driving west toward their destination. The family passed three warning signs on the road which read, Bear Camp Road may be blocked by snowdrifts. Later, Katie would say that she only noticed one of those signs. It sounds like she was sleeping for the first part of the drive on Bear Camp Road. James was really struggling with the driving conditions on the road. It was snowing heavily. The road was narrow, unplowed, winding, and poorly maintained. Part of it was on the side of a mountain, and there were no guardrails. James was driving slowly. He eventually brought his vehicle to a stop due to the heavy snow conditions. He turned around and started heading east. Because the couple had such a rough experience on Bear Camp Road, when they saw an opportunity to turn off onto another road, they took it. They thought this other road would take them to a lower elevation. The road they turned on was called BLM Road 34836. It was a logging road. It was maintained by the Bureau of Land Management. The entrance to the road was protected by a gate that was supposed to be closed and locked, according to the policy of the Bureau. But on this day, it was open because employees of the Bureau were afraid of trapping hunters who had used the road. James drove his vehicle for 23 miles along this road. Initially, the road was paved, but then the pavement ended. For some reason, James continued driving even though snow was accumulating and there were large rocks on the road. At 1 a.m., now on November 26, James was tired of driving. The snow continued to fall. The couple found themselves at an intersection and couldn't decide which way to go. They did not know how to get out of the wilderness. The Kims had a cell phone, but they were out of range. They figured that another car would be driving by fairly soon, apparently not realizing they were in a very remote area. James left the engine running to keep the family warm. He wrote the letters SOS in the snow. The Kims made a campfire using magazines and dried wood. James even burned his daughter's stuffed lamb, referring to it as a sacrificial lamb. He then removed the tires from the vehicle and set them on fire. By this point, the vehicle had run out of fuel, so I guess James figured that without gasoline, the tires were not that important. The fire became large enough to where the smoke made it past the tops of the trees. James and Katie were certain they would be rescued right away. After a few days, the family was freezing cold, thirsty, and hungry. On November 29, Katie noticed a message in the corner of the paper map that she and James had missed. It read, Not all roads advisable. Check weather conditions. Back in San Francisco, somebody finally noticed that the Kims were missing and reported this to the police. A search effort was initiated on November 30. A couple of cell phone engineers offered to help the police by searching through data logs. Changing atmospheric conditions could allow text messages to be transmitted through the network at greater distances than usual. So this would enable the engineers to get a rough idea of where that phone was. Police initially rejected the help from the engineers, which turned out to be a catastrophic mistake. Eventually, the engineers contacted the family directly and were able to determine that on November 26 at 1.30 a.m., the Kim's phone was connected to a tower near Glendale, Oregon. This led the authorities to focus on Bear Camp Road. Concerned that they would never be found, James decided to leave the vehicle on December 2. He thought that there was a town about four miles away 
based on his understanding of the map. In reality, the town was much farther away than that. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. Ohio is a land of mystery. From missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface to strange phenomenon slicing through her skies. From myths that have evolved around historic events and people to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com James told his wife that he would return by 1 p.m. He was not equipped for the cold weather. For example, he was wearing a jacket and sneakers. He did not have any water or food with him. As he started to leave the area, he tied strips of clothing to trees to mark his route. James made his way down BLM Road 34836 for several miles before breaking off into a ravine and going down a mountain. As James was doing this, searchers continued to look for the Kim family. At one point, Katie took her two children and started walking away from the vehicle. She took a different road than the one that James had selected. Within two hours, she was overcome by the cold, dehydration, lightheadedness, and hallucinations. She returned back to the vehicle. On December 4, a helicopter pilot spotted tracks in the snow and followed them back to the intersection where the Kim's vehicle was parked. The pilot saw Katie and her two daughters and called for another helicopter to come out and pick them up. It is believed that the tracks spotted by the pilot were made by James, although they may have been Katie's footprints. James was still missing. The authorities continued to search for him. His body was found in one or two feet of icy water in Big Windy Creek just after 12 p.m. on December 6. It's believed that James covered about 16 miles during his journey, but he was walking in circles. His body was recovered just two miles from the station wagon. He had taken off some of his clothes and dropped them on the ground. When somebody is dying from hypothermia, they often feel warm and sometimes remove their clothing. The autopsy revealed that James died from hypothermia on December 4, the same day his family was rescued. He had not sustained any injuries that would have made him stop walking. He simply succumbed to the freezing cold. Now moving to my analysis. Let's take a look at the factors that contributed to this tragedy. Item number one. The couple did not seem to have a very good sense of direction or the ability to understand a map. James missed his exit, traveled on a treacherous road that even locals avoided during the winter, and continued to make bad decisions like selecting even more dangerous roads. Item number two, the couple did not properly manage their risk. They were not prepared for the wilderness. They had two young children with them. They had been warned by the person at the hotel that the place was hard to find. Yet they still selected to drive on a treacherous road in the freezing cold at night 
and Katie decided to sleep during the first part of that trip. Item number three, when the couple was first in danger, they did not realize it. They were overly optimistic about their chances of being rescued. For example, they believed that a car would drive by any moment and see them. They also did not understand how long it would take for people to report them missing. They were burning items and creating signals long before anybody was looking for them. At some point, the couple did realize the gravity of their situation. Katie even made James promise to kill her if they were not going to make it out. Item number four, James was particularly determined to get to his destination and ignored multiple signs of danger. For example, the three warning signs he passed on Bear Camp Road, the fact that the road was not plowed and there was no guardrail, there were no streetlights in the area, no houses, no businesses, no other vehicles. It's hard to believe that it didn't occur to him at some point that this was not a regularly traveled normal route in the area. When James turned the vehicle around on Bear Camp Road and started heading east, he would have been fine if he just followed the road back to where they came from. But he thought that taking a logging road would somehow lead him to safety faster, even though he had a very bad experience after selecting a road that was not used often. So he was making the same mistake repeatedly. It's like he just wasn't learning from his mistakes. Item number five, the gate for the logging road should have been closed and locked. Also, the signs on Bear Camp Road should have clearly stated the dangers of traveling on that road. After the tragedy, new signs were put up, which are much more compelling than the old signs. Moving to the next question, should James have walked away from the vehicle? A lot of people have criticized his decision to leave his family, considering that he was completely unprepared for the conditions and had no idea where they were. Looking at how things turned out, clearly he should have spent time trying to maintain a signal where his vehicle was, like keeping a fire burning, as opposed to wandering to his death. His decision was based on the incorrect assessment of their location. If the town that he was trying to get to was only four miles away, then he would have been making a good decision. He traveled 16 miles before dying. He could have easily made it four miles to a town. I think the flaw in his decision-making process was to trust his own navigation abilities, not in his belief that he could hike four miles. He was once again overconfident. Nothing about his experiences in the past few days should have led him to believe that trusting his sense of direction was advisable. Now, one could argue that the tracks that James left is what the helicopter pilot spotted. Therefore, if James had not left, they wouldn't have been rescued. But I think if he spent his time working on a fire, the helicopter would have spotted him. There was no way to know that those tracks would be spotted by the helicopter pilot. Also, he could have made those tracks in an open area and then returned back to the vehicle. He didn't have to walk for 16 miles to make tracks sufficient enough to be spotted by the helicopter. So the idea that the tracks got spied by the helicopter does put a twist in this case, and it makes it seem like maybe he did the right thing to some extent, but leaving the vehicle was still not an advisable strategy. What lessons can we learn in this case? People often do not recognize the danger that they're in until it's too late, because they are overconfident and focused on a particular objective. They disregard the warning signs and do not allow themselves to entertain the possibility of not getting what they wanted. 
so they're focused on the reward and not on the consequences. Recognizing danger is all about accepting reality. It's important to have flexible thinking, which includes acknowledging potential failure and continually reevaluating one situation. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis. My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland News producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mahalovic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast, killer podcasts, and slow burn media production. Subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows.